Welcome to their podcast that's dedicating to helping business owners prepare for exit so you can maximize value and exit on your terms. This is the Exit Insights podcast presented by Succession Plus. And I'm Daryl Bates-Brownsort, and today I'm talking to Piers Bean from Collingwood Advisory. Welcome, Piers, and thanks for joining us today. Hey, look, why, Hi, don't, you just, hey, why don't you start by giving us a bit of background about yourself and uh, how you ended up advising businesses and uh, yeah, based on all of your experiences, and we'll jump in from there. Yeah, so I guess I started my first business in 2002. Um, I was pretty confident because I'd been running a medium-sized business for an Australian company, as it happens, um, and uh, got the idea that I could generate some value for myself um, if I went off and launched. In that case, it was I work in media, so I wanted to launch an exhibition business. I'd noticed that exhibitions get transacted quite frequently and at reasonably high multiples compared to other forms of media. So I thought, what could possibly go wrong? And um, of course, one thing was that I hadn't had my own business. Another thing was that I'd never sold a bean in my life. <laughs> and the third thing was that all the things that I thought I knew about um, content and products were somewhat through the lens of my former employer rather than best practice. So there were some hard learnings. Um, got to year three, uh, was approached by um, a couple of guys who uh, had sold their businesses a couple of times before. This was their first acquisition. So in a way, it was really good. It was really personal. But in a way, we were all kind of feeling our way to it. I had an advisor who was an accountant that didn't know the media space or the multiples, the ROI methods. So there was um, a lot of learning, I would say. And uh, I was lucky or unlucky enough to um, be invited to do some consulting for a big uh, trade um, uh, media business shortly afterwards, during my earn out, in fact. And they asked me to work on buy side acquisitions. So to have a look at businesses like mine and say whether we should buy them. And within about five minutes, I realized, A, all the value I'd left on the table to the buyers. B, how stupid the structure of my deal was. It included a cliff edge mechanism where if you're one pound off your target, they're not obliged to buy your share. So I was left with 20% of my business with no mechanism for getting out of it. Um, and C, what the real drivers of value are, which, Daryl, as you know, they're a combination of quality of earnings fundamentally and earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortization. And I'd been thinking about revenue, market position, which is important. Both those things are important. Quality of relationships, important, but you've got to find a way of showing that to a buyer. And um, so I started thinking in my head, well, if I were to do this again, how would I do it? The first thing I thought was, I need a hostage. Well, that's not what I called them when I found them. I found some younger business partners who you know, had significant minority shareholdings in the business funded those businesses, raised some more money for them, learned quite a lot from fundraising as well, and basically ended up structuring the kind of business that I knew the people I'd been working for on the buy side would want to buy. One of those businesses we've sold a couple of times, so sold the assets out of the business as a limited company, which gives you CGT relief in the UK, as you know, um, and then restarted the business. Uh, the other company is still running and growing, and despite the fact that it's an events business, has absolutely thrived during COVID. Um, and while I was doing this, I was funding myself by working primarily on buy-side M&A. So I've had these kind of two opposite but complementary experiences of, of this is what it's like to be an entrepreneur. And then this is how your entrepreneurial business looks through the eyes of somebody who's going to pay real money for it. And I think that combination of heart and brain is quite important. You know, in, in your business, you think about exit, you think about succession. Everything's got to come back to value. You know? And if you don't have a plan that tells you 
what resources you're going to need in three or five years time and what that means, what the shape of your business means for your enterprise value, your valuation multiple. You're always leaving money on the table for somebody, even people who, and you'll have seen this a lot, there are people who quite laudably want their employees to buy their business. And I've had a lot of employee shareholders paid out quite a few of them. Um, you still need to know what the value is that you're giving to them because otherwise one of you is going to be over or undervaluing the business. If you're undervaluing the business, it will come out of your pension pot and what your kids inherit, your grandkids. And if you overvalue the business, you'll lose those key employees when they should be super motivated. So I think it's, it's given me a really clear perspective on what I'm doing as an entrepreneur. With one exception, which again, you'll have seen, which is if you're in it, and if you're the CEO of your own business, you're in it until you become a non-exec director. You can't get perspective of what you need to do on it. You have to have a board. You have to have a variety of advisors who are helping you to shape the company. And I've become, I took almost no advice in my first business, just informal, friendly stuff. And I've become a really big investor in advice for our company, even though we provide business advice to other people. So that's sort of the journey. Um, I guess the last piece of it, which comes to Collingwood Advisory, our kind of scale-up and um, M&A practice, is we're going on our own scale-up journey. And I've got the privilege of learning how to build a professional services business, having been in media all my life. So in some ways, it's fantastic because we can disrupt. We look at this thing of how do we advise people through the lens of how do we scale it quickly? How do we do this really well in media? What's special about it? But also we're fumbling, right? Like all true entrepreneurs, we're learning how to do stuff that is super basic if you're working for PwC or a long established specialist advisory business. And so we're learning how to put those building blocks together really quickly, which ironically is exactly what we do for media companies. So whilst I've got a service to sell, I think for me, the parallel between my journey as an entrepreneur and what I'm doing now is I'm still learning, my team's still learning. And that's probably what fundamentally, if you've sold your business before, the thing that you come back to when you don't need to work anymore is what can I learn? How can I develop as a person? Brilliant. So yeah, just in that introduction, this just raises so many questions. So I think one of the things you said, look, as, as, as entrepreneurs, as business owners, you know, one of the things we could really learn is looking at how a buyer values our business as opposed to how we value our business. Um, and one of the things is, is making that switch from you know, uh, an income or a revenue focus to an asset focus. What are the assets in my business? And I know the guys at Everage, I, I had them on an episode once and they were talking about you know, up to 90% of, of asset value in a business now is down to intangible assets. And, and they give the experience of, hey, look, even if you had a production type of business, you know, that's got a lot of tangible assets, if you extract the tangible assets, it's the intangible assets that tell you how to use them. All of the contracts, all of your suppliers, all of your details, all of your processes, all of those intangible assets, which are primarily the, uh, the beginning and end of a service-based business. So it's the intangible assets that build the, the bulk of the value today. And the other thing I think you ended up on, which is really uh, a key point for, for entrepreneurs, is that you can know all the theory, you can have been through the process, been an employee for, for someone else, but now that it's your business, it's a totally different journey. When it's you calling the shots, you designing the business, it's you know the, the way you experience that journey when you're in the middle of it, as opposed to when you're on the outside guiding or looking in, it's a totally different experience and, and you feel it at a different level uh, and the stresses and you just don't 
often see the wood for the trees. Your your thinking processes are different, and um, and that's where the value of advice comes in. And and I think you said you nailed it beautifully when you said, yeah, I'm an advisory business, but I'm taking on bucket loads of advice. Uh, maybe not your words, but you know we take advantage of advice of those those third party people looking in. So that, that's what I heard. What, what do you see, um, Piers, when, when you're advising businesses? What's, what's the, the biggest sort of trend or pattern of mistakes? Or, you know, and they may not even be mistakes. It could be just oversights of business owners when it comes to you know, thinking about exiting or, or selling or, or succession in their business. Yeah. Well, let me answer that in two ways. First, just to pick up on something you've talked about with the intangibles. I think it's a really, really important point. And I suppose there are different lenses you can look at that through. So one of them is, you know, fundamentally, if people are valuing a business in media or information. It's almost always a multiple of EBIT, right? So that that sort of, you know, the multiple depends on your quality of earnings. The EBITDA depends on your profit. Fine. What underpins that, as you've said, is how you have codified and processized, which isn't a word, your intellectual property. So... How do we work internally? How do we deliver to clients? How do we measure client success? How do we repeat, rinse, repeat, go again? What underlies that in all services businesses like yours and mine, like legal and accounting practices, like media, is knowledge and relationships. And I think sometimes the first mistake is people lose sight of or have never had sight of the fact that that's really what we do. And I think, um, you know, we, we get to see a lot of different persona types in um uh, in our work. And I say there's probably three broadly speaking. One is challenges. So these are the people who are quite rare as entrepreneurs. And their, their perception is, I want to totally disrupt this and build a multi-billion pound company. They may or may not do that, but they look at a fundamental level about the process and the delivery model. Often they're slightly undercooked on product, slightly undercooked on go-to-market, but they build a machine that is really good at generating outcomes. And they tend to think quite a lot about this knowledge and relationship things. And we love working with them. Second type, most entrepreneurs are like this, product leaders, that's what we call them. They're people who love just pumping out loads of product. And they're from, you know, in media, they might be from an editorial or a sales background. You know, in consulting, they're usually from a practitioner background, sometimes from a big four background. But they're playing to their strengths all the time. And those strengths become their weakness. So very often when you look at somebody who, who really likes the product, a, they're doing too many products. So they're not focusing on where the value is, just to come back to that concept. But B, they've often got some internal mythology about how strong their position is um, and also whether they've got real competitors or not because there's a sort of, there's an ego thing that can come out of it. So with those companies, it's much more about focus and thinking about value creation and scale up as, as the drivers of what they do rather than, well, let's get more money by doing more product. The third category, and we almost never work with these people, is what we call politely commercial leaders, and behind their backs we call opportunists. And there are some really super successful businesses in my space that are essentially sales factories. So we found a way to replicate the product. So their processes are super, super strong because the processes are designed to survive the cynicism and staff churn that is associated with building a sales factory. And there's a small number of people who make a great deal of money out of building companies like that. And if you're one of those people, good luck to you. Off you go. If you get a chance to sell the business, take it because it may not come again for five or 10 years. Um, the weakness there is that the product is almost always undercooked. 
there's intrinsic staff churn and actually you you will only be appealing to a buyer usually in the year or two before an economic crash <laughs> because there's sort of this peak of frothiness oh yes we need to buy something yeah, there's too much competition let's buy this sales factory we shouldn't worry about churn it'll be fine and by the way if you're a buyer it never ever is and if you are a commercial leader of this sort my advice is just look really hard in the mirror and say is this really what you want your legacy to be or could you be more customer driven more stakeholder and team driven and build something that is going to survive your departure. Because the biggest problem with companies like that is they're held together by a huge, dynamic, aggressive personality. When that person leaves with the sale, company dies. And I think that's a shame. I think it's something that, that is an opportunity, a personal opportunity that's left on the table. So those are the mistakes that I think I see according to the three sort of main personas. Um, I guess I'd say the probably the, there are two other categories of, of problem that I see in value creation. So one of them is the focus on profit rather than value, you know, or revenue rather than profit. Everything has to be about value or you'll get a misalignment with your customers and you'll get disrupted. And, and I guess the other thing is that people get tired. You know, Daryl, you talked eloquently about people working in their business and, you know, you and I are both scaling businesses in a, and disrupting sectors. So we get sucked into it as well. Um, and I think, People make decisions when they're tired. They give away too much power or equity to someone else. They sell when they're tired. They, they, they start to create self-fulfilling prophecies about, oh, we've hit the glass ceiling, let's stop. And another conversation you and I had prior to this was about these kind of, I call them thermoclines, like um, points where a company stops being able to rise up because they're just you just hit the limitations on the owner. And strangely, they seem to be consistent across the Atlantic. So one and a half million pound revenue, two million dollars revenue, US dollars. And again, at three million pounds and four million US dollars revenue, there are kind of those two levels of the founder. You can control things completely below 1.5. You can control things largely through a small number of trusted people up to about three million. And beyond that, you have to create more of a corporate structure. And so a lot of our work is just helping people to bust through those glass ceilings of thermoclines. Um, and I would say the mythology that oh we've just hit the natural limit of this business is not usually true. It's more about I've hit the limit of what I can control. I need to look in the mirror and change who I am, but I also need to hire people and get help to overcome my limitations. And I think a big thing in an entrepreneur is just going, okay, I don't understand that. I'll hire somebody. I'm not good at that. I'll hire somebody or I need to understand this. I'll learn this, even though it's incredibly painful for me. And I, I love it when entrepreneurs just have that go-to, like that can-learn attitude rather than can-do attitude. Um, and to me, that's the biggest part of the journey. It's, it's probably quite clear from what I've been saying. Yeah, look, you, it's fascinating, isn't it? And, and I think the I was listening intently there to what you were saying. And all those types, those limiters apply across all sectors you're applying them in, in, in the sector that you work in that you know very well. Um, and I was listening and I'm going, and it's just more confirmation. I think it could be that confirmation bias again, that you're, you know, you're looking for what you want to see. Um, yeah, and those businesses up to one and a half, one, one and a half million, two million dollars, one and a half million pounds is often just a business owner, an entrepreneur, and it doesn't help us. And, you know, and, you know, if, yeah. You know, if you really want to think about scaling your business, you need to move from the you know, hiring helpers 
to hiring people as good as yourself or, you know, dare, dare we even think it better than ourselves, especially yeah. in those specific areas. And, and I just see so often, you know, we'll, we'll hire a marketing manager, for, for example, you know, as a generalization. Hire someone who's done it before, but yeah, you've got a clear idea of what you want, um, but you don't brief them. So you just say you let them do their own thing. You don't have a, a, yeah. an organizational structure. They're, they're going, what, what, what's the extent of my, my responsibility? Well, I haven't been given anything, so I'll just use my. I'll either use my common sense and push up and keep pushing and pushing, or I'll, I won't do anything. You know, without without asking permission. And depending on the culture of the organisation, you know, we need to build structures. Yeah, and and you mentioned yeah, up to a certain. If we need a corporate structure, and and as soon as you use the word corporate, it terrifies entrepreneurial businesses. Uh, yeah, yeah. They, they you know, we don't want corporate, and you go great. What does corporate mean? And, and, and it's deathly silence. And, uh, and what they really mean is, you know, we, we want this flexibility. We, we want a structure that gives us the freedom, the family feel, the, the fluidity of, of this small dynamic business, because our experience of corporates is that they're rigid and slow and bureaucratic and you can't do anything without some sort of system and, and control in place. We don't want that. So how do we have a system that gives us the controls and, and, and you know, structures that we need for a growing business, but how we have that feel of maintaining it, how we have a structure um, that, that will grow with our business? Because if we just try and copy a corporate structure that's designed for a company of 1,000 people or 2,000 people and use that in our small business of, of 15, 20, 30, 40 people, you know, we've got a structure designed for something much bigger and that will, you know, that will lock us down quick as a flash. And I'm talking about organisational charts that people tend to, to use straight away. And, you know, it just doesn't work. You need a structure that's designed for a scaling SME, which is yeah. a matrix type of structure, a functional type of structure, rather than, a, you know, an organisational structure. And an org, org structure, in my experience, is, is based on who does what. Yeah, we've got Piers doing this, we've got Daryl doing that, we've got Paul doing that, we've got Sally doing this, and they're all about who does what. And in a, you know, to get that first layer of functional structure, you know, what I've seen uh, work well is we need to change that, you know, put it on its side, not necessarily on its head, and start with what needs to happen. If we want to gain control of this business, let's start with what needs to happen and then build our structure around that because the who is going to, we're going to ask them to take responsibility for a number of what's. And, you know, uh, and, and that's, that's what you just need to keep that dynamic, growing, nimble uh, business. But uh, we're probably well, getting into a bit much detail, but... Well, may, may, maybe not. I mean, I think the, what we're talking about is scalability, essentially. You know, you're, put, you're putting down the structures and the way of operating. And I think you're, you're into the EOS system, that, um, Gino Wickman's traction book. What can, what can we put down as principles that will scale as the company changes, as it goes from founder dominated to founder led to collegiate to ultimately kind of platform or corporate type decision-making. I like to call it platform because when you've really nailed this governance and decision-making process, you've got the option not to sell your business, but to go out and buy other businesses or to dominate a market, raise finance, go to private equity. And if you can tick all the boxes for a private equity investor, you've also ticked all the boxes for how you can scale sometimes without investment to very significant size. So I think, it, I think it's, really, it's really germane. We, we often spend a lot of time on governance and decision-making because that's the, that's the core foundation stone of scale. 
And I think that's probably why you were bringing it up as well. Yeah. And, and, and why do we need these structures? Because you know, where we really started this conversation was, well, we need to demonstrate to third party buyers that this business is resilient. You know, if, if the leaders want to move on and go to what's next in their life, the founders, um, ideally they want to be able to do that on their terms. They, they don't want to be locked in. They don't want to have, you know, I think where you started is to have the, the rules of engagement you know, change halfway through the game. So what they want is some sort of structure that demonstrates that the business can grow and scale without them. I love, um, I think it's Gerber's language where he talks about a franchise prototype. You, know, yeah. you can plug and play. Let's build it. Now, if we've got this franchise prototype, we don't have to exit. But the benefit of building it like that is we've got a really well-running business. It generates good revenue. It's predictable. It's repeatable. It's reliable. And you know what? I've had a career change. I'm no longer the chief you know, operations person good at what I do. I'm now a business person designing, scaling, structuring, looking at all the strategies of my business. And if I want to build another business, then I've got all these principles in place. You know, the business doesn't depend on me. And we've now built a, a management team that, that has a proven track record of setting goals and achieving them. And that's what a buyer is looking for. It's that reliable because what they're buying, it's, it's the predictability of cash flow, isn't it? Yeah, and they're going, hey, you've given me these forecasts. What's the likelihood of those forecasts being achieved without you at the wheel? And that, that's what they're looking for to... You know, to get, it's an investment at the end of the day for them. I think you're, you're bringing up an interesting topic around um, the different kinds of succession or exit. So they're selling your business, there's taking private equity investment, you know, they're selling to employees. And then there's the other stuff you can do with the succession plan. You know, the, 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 I guess the old school way of doing it is you go from being the CEO to being the chairperson. Yeah. And that's valid in some cases, although it brings significant issues with it as well. Because are you really letting go if you've got, uh, if you're already, often there's the exec chairman workaround where you haven't really let go, you've just dumped a, a pile of crap onto the next person below you. But I think tech, as in many areas, has sort of iterated so many times that it shows this other route and this other role if you're a creative founder. I think it's about this what founder CEO dynamic rather than chairman CEO dynamic. Because then you've got an independent chairman who doesn't have skin in the game emotionally and can think about the strategy of the business, the governance, the investor relations, and so on. The founder's job is about culture, business development, and especially about IP. And the CEO's role can be about strategy, or it can be about operations, depending on the nature of the business. But that kind of dynamic between the, the person who's created the business and the person who's running it doesn't necessarily require a conventional exit. It requires a change of role from the founder. And I think that's something that people should think about more is what role they want to have when they've exited in inverted commas. Well, that's a really good point, Pierce. And, and yeah, I think one of the ways to look at that is to break down the, the conventional, let's call it benefits of ownership. If you and I are to jump into business together, so often what happens is we go, oh, well, we're in business together. Therefore, we share the equity 50-50. Therefore, we do the same roles and therefore we make decisions together. So if you look at those three areas, there's the income we get for the work we do. There's the ownership and the benefits of ownership and the benefits of ownership of providing funding for the business and hopefully getting some capital growth and dividends. And then there's a control in, as you say, if I move into the chairman role, it's having a say of how things are done. And what we can do is if we unbundle those three areas which I think is what you're suggesting, is we can then determine our pace of exit from each of the three areas separately. 
so I can get out of the day job and just become a chairman. Well, great. Then let's let's make sure that the remuneration and the responsibilities are fitting as such. You know, if I'm a shareholder, yeah, bingo. The shareholders are responsible for, for setting up those big relationships and the vision and the culture. And, and then we go, okay, so let, let's let's document that. Let's capture that. You know, what are the control structures? How do we run a board? How do we vote people on the board? How's the board constructed? And all these things change and vary as you, as you suggest, as the business size changes. There's no point in having this type of structure and design in place for you know, an 800,000 pound business, you know, a tiny business where the, the two, you know, it's, it's less than 10 people. And then, and then we can also have, okay, so you, know, you and I, if we're in business together, then we, can, we might have totally different roles. If we're really getting it functional, then we can pay ourselves a salary for the roles we do. And I see that when businesses do that, you, know, you, you often remove the, the stress and frustration when people aren't performing and, and operating and contributing at the same levels. You know, we pay them for the job they do, and then we pay them, we give them you know, profit share based on, on um, the profitability of the company and, and you know, dividend plan or um, you know, uh, dividend plans. <clears throat> Great. So, so there's some, and I think what you're suggesting is, is we're, we're going down the same roles. We're just using the same ideas, just using different language of going, hey, hey, Mr. Client, if you really want to get this exit planning right, you need to separate and you need to think about all these other things, these other areas where, you know, which we tend to not think about on a day-to-day -day basis when we're just running the business, looking at growth and building assets and, and, and increasing revenue. We're just working so hard. I won't say chasing our tails, but we're working so hard growing and, and building the business that, that some of these nuances get overlooked. So um, private equity, what's your experience there? Do, do you know, if, if a business owner is, is taking their business, they want to scale it, you know, just changing topic a bit. You know, I, I, I get a number of business owners going, look, we've built the business. It's a substantial size now. We want to take some risk off the table. We want to de-risk it. If we can get some funding in, some funding will de-risk it for us. I'm not ready to, to, to bail out, but um, I've got some big ideas to take it to the next level and use some capital. Um, in your experience, you know, what, what should owners look out for? You know, what gotchas are there? Uh, and um, you know, what would a good deal, you know, how would they identify if it's a good deal and a good match for them? Yeah. Well, I think you, probably starting from the inside out rather than the outside in. I think, obviously, we all like the idea of cake and eat, don't we? So I'll take some money off the table and I'll still run it and have some fun with it. And maybe I'll make some money in the future. That's kind of an output rather than a reason for doing it. And I think there's, you know, we, we have a panel of private equity players who specialize in the kind of media and services space. And we do an annual um, quality and quant survey with them on kind of what they're investing in. We're just producing our next one now. Um, it comes out at the end of the month. And, you know, it's a really long, long game. Like if you're talking, starting with just the process of it, if you're not talking to and identifying who your most likely private equity investors are 18 months prior to exit, you're going to get a bad deal or you're more likely to get a bad deal. So it requires some real planning and they want to get to know you. And this is quite crucial. It's not like a trade sale where it's kind of, yeah, I'll do my earn out or I'll walk away on day one. You give me the cash. You can do what you want with it. This is a really deep long-term relationship. And if you are exiting on, the, on day one with private equity, you already have to be right out of the operations of the business. You could be a non-executive director. You could be a chairperson. If you've got significant operational or IP development responsibilities, 
you are going to be a management team member that is bound up with bank covenants and a series of legal agreements that are much more serious than you'd get on a trade deal. And therefore, the business plan and the reasons for getting that investment are so important. So, Daryl, you talked about the ambition for the business. So it's not always about buy and build. It's not, you don't always have to have a plan to acquire other businesses. No. But if you don't have a reason to deploy funds, then private equity is probably not the right route for you. Because how do they get their ROI? How do they get their average 2.53x across failures and successes? It's not obvious. Um, well, I think that thing of this, this, just there. Go ahead. There's a great tip that you're sharing for the listeners just there is, is be aware of what your investor's looking for. Totally, totally. And what they're afraid of as well. So what they're afraid of is that the person who they're buying into, the CEO, is going to walk. And it is extremely rare for a CEO who goes through a private equity term to be able to get out before the next private equity term unless you've already got a succession plan in place. And if you do, my advice is execute that succession plan first, sell the business with the management team in place so it's more like an MBO, and then you've got true freedom or commit to doing more than one term. So a primary and a secondary private equity deal with the explicit understanding that during the second term, there'll be a succession plan that's activated. But private equity investors hate uncertainty and they want to know who they're in business with. And so the succession planning, where you specialise, Daryl, is so important because that goes years into the future. If you think, okay, many private equity deals are kind of a two, three, four-year term, but quite often, especially if the economy is not safe, it can be five or seven years between terms. So that's a really long time to commit and to have uncertainty about your personal status. So you've got to have that ambition. You've got to have a plan that sustains diligence. And you've also got to have a business that really feels like it is private equity ready. And we talked about governance before. Yeah. At the level of reporting, the level of formality that you've got in a private equity backed vehicle has to be the same as you get in a big corporate. Doesn't mean you can't be entrepreneurial. Doesn't mean you can't have your culture. You've got to be ready for that level of reporting. And I've lost track of the number of people who've gone to private equity and said, I just didn't realise how serious you could get with your financial reporting and how detailed. Like We've been through three CFOs and now we, we kind of get it. It's been really painful. It will be painful because you've been having fun. And now you're going to have fun, but you're also going to be playing with the big boys and deploying serious, serious capital. And there, you know, there are some very serious parts to it, like banking covenants. So as part of um, the private equity vehicle, you'll be borrowing a whole bunch of money and there will be an EBITDA covenant level if you fall below the EBITDA level, you can ultimately get taken out by the banks. So that doesn't happen in a trade deal. And it certainly doesn't happen in a private company um, unless you, you manage to get you know, significant levels of leverage because you've got to scale. So those are what things worth thinking of. The brilliant thing about private equity is that the model gets them super aligned with you on value creation. You know, if you let's say that you've got, you sold your business for 10 million quid, you've got 50% shareholding, you might, you might take two and a half off the table and then reinvest two and a half just to be crude on the numbers. That two and a half, a big chunk of it is going to be in loan notes collecting maybe 10, 12% interest. So provided you get another um, turn, you're going to get a really, really interesting return on, on that capital in addition to your equity capital. And there's such a thing called sweet equity where there's a certain amount that's put aside for management, provided they have some skin in the game. You might have to remortgage your house if, you haven't, if you're not selling the business you get to go side by side with the private equity people. And all of you are thinking about what's our next exit. 
And having some really smart, financially rigorous people saying, right, if we do it in 3.2 years time, the number will be this, will help you to get a better outcome, provided you are PE ready. You've really got your business and your governance structured in the correct one. And just to give business owners, I guess, some feel um, out there, what, what sort of size? Is there, in your experience, a, a general size of business before they're, you know, A, they need all the systems and infrastructure in place to be mm -hmm. uh, capital ready, investment ready. But what sort of size are they generally, just to give them some thoughts of uh, what these guys want to look at? Yeah. So if you're um, doing a primary deal, um, the likelihood is you're going to be playing in the lower mid market. So that's somewhere between a million and a half and three million EBITDA typically. So you might be doing between five and 15 million turnover, depending on your industry. At below a million and a half, you're very unlikely to get private equity investors interested. Um, that's just how it is. There's a minimum amount of growth they want to get from it and a minimum amount of stability. Um, once you get over three million, get towards five, you're getting into the mid market and then it carries up from there. And, you know, I've heard the analogy of kind of football leagues, if we we're still using quite masculine metaphors here, but you might often start with, you know, a league one or a championship type investor, and then they'll pass you on to one league up and then it's the premier league and it's the champions league. So there's an established kind of flow of going from smaller to bigger funds. Um, but yeah, below 1.5, don't even think about it. The other thing about 1.5 million EBITDA is you've got to have a pretty good business to get to that level anyway. Yeah. So there's a sort of, there's an intrinsic value tick box for, for the investor. Yeah, and, and I just think that's a really good insight for business owners to know that, you know, how far do they have to get? What do they need to build in place first? You know, there's other sorts of funding through banks and, and lenders and, and debt funding as opposed to you know, equity funding <clears throat> before they go there um, and, and jump up a league, so to speak. And then, and then once they're in that league, there are other leagues within leagues um and and layers to, to go to and it depends how far their vision is and 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 what their business is capable of and, and what the leadership and the, and the management team are capable of yeah and i think strategy as well i mean one thing i find that the more you deal with the, the really smart people who work in corporate finance is they understand complexity but they sell simplicity to their investors so if you're talking to a private equity fund those are the general partners, right? The partners you're talking to. Behind them are the LPs, the limited partners who are institutional investors. And when they're showing their portfolio, the private equity fund to those LPs, and it's the same with an investment committee and a trade buyer, they need to a one line on each. Here's the business model, here's the strategy. And your strategy as it is an independent business will be slightly different to what it is as a PE-backed business. So you might say, to take a, you know, example from the, from the media space, We've got a leading exhibition and trade publication in the robotics space. Okay, great. That's our strategy, right? We're going to create a market leadership position. But in PE, they might say, well, what we're going to do is totally dominate the robotics space through information products, through social media, through mobile apps, etc. So a sort of a market consolidation play, or it might be, we are globally going to do what we've done in robotics in a series of other um, manufacturing automation type topics and we're going to where we can buy we're going to buy we're going to selectively launch here but we're, all we're going to do is media and events but we're going to do it we're going to do it in a series of related and adjacent sectors and being spending some time looking at those big market maps and saying what should we buy what should we compete with where's there a gap we should go into and therefore what does that mean for the balance of our org chart 
is so important. And that usually that planning should happen in parallel with developing those relationships with the PE. So like I said, a year and a half is the shortest time. If you've got three years to look ahead, fantastic. Because those guys are going to really trust you. And if they see you delivering on your plan and developing your big vision, and they've even given you feedback into it, you've got past that trust. You've met the investment committee. You know, it, it's going to make you the whole diligence process a lot easier. Yeah. So, so yeah, what, what we're suggesting here is that if you've really got a big picture, you yeah, these the, the big growth, the big investments don't happen you know in in short spurts. They're long term planning, and you really need a longer term strategy to to pull that off uh, to get that growth. And and you need to be an established business to begin with. So our entrepreneurs are sitting there. They've built their business. They've gone through a couple of investment rounds. They've taken their business as far as they want to take it, and they're gone. Look, it's time for me to to bow out. So, uh, what what are your thoughts, Pierce? Why, why, when entrepreneurs exit their business, why can't they just sit still? They've all got this dream that they they want to sit on a mm. beach, uh, drinking pina coladas, and they can do that for about a week, uh, and then they get itchy feet. What do you think is going on there? Uh, well, I think there's a couple of things. One of them is if you have got a business to that size, you are most likely very creative and you're also most likely somebody who's got a heightened sense of opportunity and risk. So you, your contingency planning brain node is just flashing the whole time, right? Your, your frontal, prefrontal cortex. So you can't turn off the nature of your brain, <laughs> number one. Number two, there's the thing, when you're doing the work and you're taking a financial risk and you're in charge of the people, it's not so much fun. When the financial risk is taken away and you find other people to, um, <laughs> to manage the people, the work is awesome, right? So most people who do businesses come back and they go, right, I'm going to do it again, but I'm going to have a CEO, CEO or I'm going to have a COO. I'm just going to invest earlier in these people who do the stuff that I don't like doing. And I'm going to think bigger. I'm going to invest properly in product from day one. So you want to go back and fix the thing. And this is what I'm doing right now, right? I'm fixing the stuff that I didn't get right in my first business, not just for my clients, but for me and my business and the cool people I've got working in it. So it's a sense of unfinished business. I would say people should reflect. I always worry about people who go straight from exit to, and I've already got three plans going for the next one. They don't have the minute on the beach. And especially just try 72 hours without a business card or an identity and not saying to somebody that you've sold the business, just saying that you're not doing anything because that gives you the chance to move forward as a person. And I, you know, I really think people underestimate the extent to which they should allow themselves to change and progress. doesn't mean you won't go back and start another business, but you might take a sabbatical. You might do some pro bono work. You might spend more time with your family or your extended family or the friends you haven't seen. And I, I just think if you don't do that, maybe you're doing it out of fear more than out of hope. And we shouldn't make any decisions out of fear, especially if you've made a few million quid. <laughs> and I think to add to that, you know, what I've seen is, is that these guys are entrepreneurs. You know, as you say, they, they've got active, they're always opportunists. They're, they're thinking what's next. You know, they, they can't help themselves. They're seeing opportunities for things that can be done better or need changing. It's just the, the way they work. So, uh, you know, the tip that I've heard and learned over the years is, is if we are, 
if if the entrepreneurs don't know what's next after their business, if they don't have a vision for what what they're going to move on to, then mm. they'll find subconsciously a way to stop this exit moving forward. Yeah, yeah. They'll, you know, they'll they'll become a blocker. There'll be something uh, of why it's not the right timing, and, and so so what's the learning is that when we're working with entrepreneurs um, to and and they're convinced and they they feel that they want they're ready to exit. Yeah, part of our role is to help them figure out what they're going to move on to. If they've got a vision, because once they get excited about a vision of what's next, they're already there. They're running there. They're finding solutions. They're making it happen. And, and that will enable them to let go of what they've built. And, and whether it's, um, you know, fixing past mistakes, like you're suggesting that you are, a lot of people go do that. A lot of them want to go on and then and invest in other businesses in, in angel mm-hmm. type ways. Uh, and, and you know, someone will become, um, you know, Commodore of the, the Yacht Club or, you know, they, they can see they can take their skills and, and their, their structural and growth and, and entrepreneurial skills and apply them in different areas. Yeah. You know, and some of it's charity. And, you know, but as long as they know what they're moving on to next, I think is uh, the, the key to helping them let go of the past and the history. Yeah. And I, I do think that looking having some help looking in the mirror can be good. You know, we're working with a business coach at the moment because we know that if we're really honest about the blockers that we've got individually, those, those, those things in yourself and in your relationships as a leadership team cast a long shadow over your organization, um, which I think is an Emerson quote. And so I think it's not just to your personal benefit, it's gonna be to the benefit of whatever enterprise or organization you're involved with next that you, that you do that. For what it's worth, that's my strong view. Yeah, well, and, and that sort of links back to the comment you made earlier about business owners. You know, it's not the limit of the business; it's the limit of the the owners, the people running the business. Uh, that the, you know, it's always the owners, the founders, are the limiting factors. Um, yeah, whatever that is. Once we realise that, then we can bring in business coaches. We can do whatever we can to increase those limits. Yeah, yeah, nice point. So, Pierce, look, we've covered a heck of a lot of ground today. Um, yeah, just to help listeners with with uh, the key points of this 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 podcast, this episode, what's the number one thing you you think that you've you've touched on today that that'd be the biggest tip to help business owners uh, start thinking about their exit and preparing their business for exit? I'm going to cheat and use a concept that's got two or three aspects to it. <laughs> I'm just going to say, think about value, you know, and there there are layers to it, right? So there is financial value, and we've talked about the different ways that you can achieve that. There's also intrinsic and stakeholder value. So the more you're creating value for your customers and your teams, and particularly the wider environment, the more you're driving that enterprise value, the more you're getting satisfaction. And that takes me to the third point. Think about what you personally value now and in your future role. Um, and I think if you're thinking, you know, don't, don't think a lot about succession. If you are thinking about succession or exit, taking those aspects of value and putting a future value on it, a future financial value on, this is what the business is worth today, this is what it's worth in three years' time, allows you to be rational about what is otherwise an extremely emotional you know, and volatile process. So if nothing else, quantify that value. Value is an often uh, overused word, but I think you, you've captured the meaning of value and uh, the context of using it really concisely there. So uh, thanks for that. Thanks for sharing with us today and uh, a heck of a lot of insights there for uh, business owners to think about when preparing for exit. Thanks, Dale. Really great talking to you.